Welcome. I'm the host of the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show podcast. My name is Billy. You can catch my show at anchor.fm backslash KTNA. And we also have a YouTube channel, the Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. I've interviewed over 200 people on my show. And because I do what I do, I stumbled over a whole new way to think of our lives. It happened one evening when we were invited to dinner with Ted Agon. Based on this way of thinking, I've asked Ted if I could introduce him and his podcast. Please like, subscribe, follow, and more importantly, share his program. I've started to use it on a daily basis, and it works. Welcome your host, Ted Agon. Ted, before we talk about the findings in your books, everybody's present has a past. If we don't know where they've been, we don't know where they are coming from. Ted, can you tell us a little bit about where you've been? Well, a little bit. Uh, I am 77, so that's an awful chunk. But uh, might as well start at the beginning. I grew up in a dairy country village of 812 people, a half mile from the Canadian border, four seasons and so forth. And uh, kind of background, uh, my dad died at a very early age and left my mother with three infants. And so she was our guiding light through, in fact I've dedicated all my books to her. Because she introduces to variety, to nature, to music, the environment. Uh, and she was a hunter camper, so she was slept on the ground. This is unusual for a woman born in 1916. Uh, even uh, in her early life, uh, I think I was 12, she borrowed her brother's small station wagon and we camped from the Canadian border down in North Carolina. And at that time, there weren't camping grounds in the, in the state parks in the south, but they let us stay there anyway. And we got a, in fact, there was an article written on us because here's this woman this far from, far from home. And those days, that was 1,500 miles. That's without interstate highways. Many people didn't have dial telephones yet. They were the old telephones you picked up on the side. In fact, that's what I grew up with. Uh, so adventurous. So she, that's how we learned to read maps and all these other things. So she led us uh, into paths we didn't know we were being led into, which is great. So that's, that's primarily the beginning of things. Uh, she, she was even in Vietnam during the war with us. In her middle 50s, she had a pickup truck and camper and traveled for two years learning Spanish by herself in Mexico. So it gives you a little background about this woman who was born in 1916. So that's where I started from. And then next, uh, in fact, here's a pretty good story. I'll tell it anyway. I graduated high school at the age of 17. And I had a summer job. And uh, it was after the summer job. I was raking leaves. It is the north. Uh, where there's a lot of these. And she came out and said, Ted, uh, what are you planning on doing next? And I said, uh, I paused just a little bit too long. So she said, well, you have two choices. Pay room or board and move out. So I joined the Air Force. One of the better non-decisions I made. Uh, I went through 30 week, 38 weeks of school, electronics, 
which gave me a great background. And then I worked in central Georgia at a depot where they repaired all the, the equipment from the seven southern states to receive Brazil and Puerto Rico that they couldn't fix in the field. But also there, they had a class every two weeks of 10 men. 10 technicians had been in the field for a while and uh, from these seven southern states and so forth uh, to up, upgrade them on their technology, refresh them, and et cetera. So I was there six weeks, six months as a technician, my full experience. And the first sergeant came up to me and it said, you know, Glenn is leaving. Well, Glenn's the instructor, right? See, yeah, I know that. He says, you're the next instructor. Now, here I'm going to be instructing. I'm six months as a technician. And these guys have been technicians for years. They all outrank me. They're all older than me. And I'm supposed to be upgrading them. It was one of the best experiences. It tested me. It made me speak in simple terms. And one thing I did is, you know, we'll reference, maybe reference later. They asked me these questions they didn't think I knew how to answer. And I would write those questions down for each class. So I had more and more, excuse me, questions. I had more and more questions, okay? And I would study those. So they were giving the old day version of Q&As, okay? Or FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions. Uh, and that's how I built my repertoire of knowledge, by those questions that was prepared. So after that period, I, I got out when I was uh, 21. And then at 22, I went overseas. My uh, younger brother and older brother were in Vietnam during the war. And uh, my older brother came back and uh, he dropped out of college, by the way, to go to Vietnam. Younger brother, by the way, was Special Forces Vietnam, so he was out of the military at that time. And so my younger brother talked to me about many things and he said what do you think about going and I said why not and most of my life has been why not and if you check the background page on my website you'll see that I couldn't stay still uh, so I went to Vietnam and with my background in electronics I found an electronics job in long distance communication so that worked then my brother and I, another gentleman, started a tugboat and barge company. Started it with two small tugboats and a small barge and built it to 33 barges and six tugboats to support the military operation in Vietnam in so much as carrying crushed rock. Why? Bridges, roads, airports, harbors. So I was in Vietnam for eight years during that process and get out about uh, four months before Vietnam fell. My older brother got out the last, last day. So from there, well, probably the best thing for the listeners to do is go look at the background page because I can go on and on about this. Uh, I'll add a few more in there. Uh, in 1979, I had a ship and two doctors and nine nurses. And the ship was owned by World Vision International, a Christian evangelical organization. And I was the project manager on board because of my Vietnamese background, speaking Vietnamese and having boats in the marine operation. And so those two doctors and nine, nine nurses on board, our first goal was sea rescue for the Vietnamese boat people. 
And most people don't know, they estimate between 200 and 400,000 boat people, men, women, children, died at sea because that's how the sea is. And these people leaving land were not seamen. So that was our first goal. The goal was also to set, this is kind of a side story actually, the goal was to set if we rescued Vietnamese, which we were going to, could we bring them back into port? Because most of the ports in that area were rejecting that because they didn't want Vietnamese landing on their shore and all the problems that might come up with that refugee camps and so forth and so on. So we want to set a precedence. But, so it was bad for commercial vessels because they wanted to come in and offload their supplies. Well, that cost them millions of dollars to just sit there with Vietnamese on board because they couldn't offload. And we didn't have that problem because we weren't commercial. So we did rescue 146 Vietnamese. There was a BBC documentary shot on that situation. Uh, and we brought those back to Singapore, and Singapore accepted them. As long as it was guaranteed by the United States that they could move on from there to the United States. But most of the refugees, we, then we worked two refugee camps in little tiny islands out in the middle of the South China Sea. They're Indonesian islands. And on there, there was an island with two camps of Vietnamese, both 15,000 population each, men, women, and children. So on our peak day, we vaccinated 9,500 men, women, and children, including their documentation, so they could travel to other countries. And other countries were France, uh, United States, obviously, and Australia. So we just wouldn't. So, so that's, that's another thing we did in the sea rescue process. Uh, after that, I was still in Singapore, still with World Vision. Then I flew in relief supplies into Cambodia after the killing fields. I don't know if anybody's seen the movie, The Killing Fields. That's where three million people were killed in five years by their own population, which makes it very unusual. Um, and that's, that's a whole other story of what I found there. You spent a lot of time outside of the United States. I did. I, uh, yes. So I was a provincial administrator for a year. Uh, for administration of a development of a province in the country of Oman, which is right next to UAE and between there and Yemen. Uh, unusually, there's another piece of Oman that's on the other side of the United Arab Emirates, UAE, just like there is a Texas, excuse me, a Alaska separated from the United States by another country. And that's the province, it was the province of Musundum. And that's the finger of land that creates the Straits of Hormuz. And that was a fascinating experience. Picked up a little bit more Arabic. So, following that, I worked for the French out of Marseille. I was a research submarine pilot. He seems quite a leap here. He was still marine-oriented, sort of. Uh, and uh, I piloted submarines in the... Uh, Adriatic, Red Sea, Mediterranean, and off the west coast of Africa, uh, primarily the Ivory Coast and the Congo. And the Congo was the deepest dive I ever made, which was 4,350 feet. That's about eight-tenths of a mile. Uh, following that, I uh, came back to the States, and I introduced, from the seafloor, I introduced uh, human-equivalent robotics to space to the space agency at NASA here in Houston, Johnson Space Flight Center. So technology, humanity, development, international, 
anyway, that's some of my international experience. There's more, but you can catch that on my website. Um, you're, you're, the message that we're trying to get across and it's in all of your books is stupidly simple. It is. So, but I had to take notes. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, you've written four books. We have just 17 syllables up there. We have the human key. We have the learning curve. And we have manure of the mind. Yes. Um, tell us what... Tell us about your first book, and sure. then we'll kind of get into sure. the human key and the learning curve. Sure. While in Singapore doing Sea Rescue, I was in a bookstore, and I ran, ran across a book by John Hackett, who it was a poetry book of Japanese poetry, haiku poetry. For those who don't know what haiku poetry is, it's not a rhyming poetry, it's a message. It's so the format is it's 17 syllables long usually arranged in three lines five seven five and in that 17 syllables what impressed me and it still impressed me today is how much you can important thing you can get into one virtually one sentence and it's simple, it's simplicity. And they're also about seasons. There's a reference to seasons. So my book is spring, summer, winter, fall. And in Japanese poetry, haiku, there's always a reference, sometimes obliquely, to season. For example, they may mention cherry blossoms. Well, that's spring. And because I come from a natural background, a small village, camping, all this, then I could immediately grasp that concept, and I love the simplicity of speaking, of writing down things simply, and from that I learned to speak simply. And when I write my books today and do public speaking, it's always simple language. The complex is a combination of the simple. If you can understand the simple, then you can conquer, conquer and control the complex. If you speak simply, then everybody reading or listening can understand you. In public speaking, there's sometimes usually men who use big words to impress people. Well, one thing, there's some people who don't understand what he's saying. That's not in their vocabulary, so that's no good. And other think he's a pompous ass and don't listen to him either. Simplicity. Living in five countries whose language was not English, that I learned to speak some very simple English in order to be understood. So this has all gone into my thought process. Simple, 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 simple. And you say simply stupid or stupidly simple. Uh, it is. So my books are written that way. So these are not complex uh, books written for college professors or these are written for people like me, people like you. Uh, completely logical and understandable. What did you learn from writing that first book? Simplicity. Simplicity of speech, simplicity of writing, refining. All, all writing is rewriting. All writing is rewriting. You rethink it and redo it. To refine and do it. There's one author, I can't think of his name, 
this 100 years ago, he says, in the morning I put in a comma, later in the afternoon I took it back out. <laughs> okay. So, but more people should write. Even if it's right about their sports or whatever it is, just write it down. There's a reason for that, and I, I discuss that in my books. You know, it's interesting that the there's so many different aspects in life that what we're going to get to here can be used. What I stumbled upon is what they call a universal truth. It's universally applied to every human on earth. And it's as basic as you can get. And it's as powerful as you can get. Now it sounds like overstatement or hyperbole or whatever, but we will find out as we go through here. And when did you write your second book? How did you stumble? Did, it wasn't did you stumble the right word? Yeah, it wasn't until 28 years later after my first book, which is Haiku, that I was giving talks on communicating, not communication, but communicating to combined uh, college classes and to business groups. And afterwards, without fail, they, these, these students or the professor or the business people come up and say, can I buy your book? And I just say, well, I don't have one. So maybe they were smarter than I was. So I started writing a book on communicating. After about three months, I stumbled upon something that changed the whole course of the book. The book then became on thinking, learning, and communicating. And they are, the, they are the core of what we are as humans, because you can't think without learning, you can't learn without thinking, and you can't do either one without internal or external communicating. So that the book titled wound up to be The Human Key. The Human Key. The subtitle is You'll Never Look at a Question the Same Way Again. So while I was writing, uh, communicating. Communication, many people don't know the definition of communication. They say talking to people or or if you go to college, communication courses and so forth and so on. But the definition of communication is the communicating is the exchange of information. Information in one direction is broadcasting. That's why you go to school to learn communications giving information out, but you're not getting information back. Now you have to do surveys and so forth and so on to try to claw back information. Well, when you ask a person a question, I discovered, or I thought, when I ask them a question, for example, if I said, I come from the state with the largest wilderness park, which one is it? And you would have to say, before you did anything, which one is it? You'd have to repeat that question. So I said, is that thinking? Because you have to go through that process every time you go for to, to get a solution, right? That's what thinking is, to get a solution. So then I started looking elsewhere to see if that was in fact true, even though, and I did massive research, it's not in any research. So, thinking is central to who we are as humans. 
the better we are able to think, the better our outcomes. That's for us and our children and our community. So thinking is one aspect of us as humans. The other aspect is that's the rational. Then there's the emotional. If we we're totally rational, we wouldn't be humans, we'd be machines. If we were totally emotional, we wouldn't exist because we wouldn't know where to find food or water. Or, that's a rational process, where? So our emotions are much more powerful, or very powerful, and instantaneous. They come up like anger or something like that. Whereas the rational part, our thinking part, takes time. So there's an advantage. Is first of all, emotions are more powerful than the rational, and they're more immediate. But it's only the rational that counterbalance the negative, destructive emotions we have. And it's the only way to combat misinformation, disinformation, and baseless conspiracy theories. It's the only way. It's a think thought process, think it out, and so forth. So, what is thinking? What is thinking? What is thinking? I'm asking everybody that's listening, what is thinking? I'm going to ask you another question. Has anybody ever asked you this question before? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Have you ever gone to the dictionary to look up the definition of thinking? Well, in my experience in public speaking and talking to individuals, I found the answer to all three of those last questions, no. Well, if we don't know what thinking is, then we can't improve it. We can't improve what we don't know. If you can't measure it, it can't be improved. So, I then will provide you and I provide everybody the definition that I stumbled over. Afterwards, I'm going to ask you whether you disagree with it, agree with it, not sure about the definition, or any other answer. Thinking is the process of asking ourselves questions. I'm going to repeat that. Thinking is the process of asking ourselves questions. Do you disagree with it? Agree with it? Not sure about it? Any other answer in reference to the definition? Well, since I can't hear your response, it actually doesn't make any difference what your answer is. How can this be? Because of this logical process. It's strictly logical. Although there are questions without answers, there's never an answer without a question. Are we always aware? We aren't. We'll get into that in a second. Okay. So, just by your answer, you confirm that the definition is accurate because you had to have it question that preceded. Now, this can be a conscious question or an unconscious question. How can there be unconscious questions? Well, let's address that. Our brain is an analytical organ. It's a thinking organ, but it's the analytical organ, right? Yes. Analyzing is a process of questioning. Therefore, the brain is a questioning organ. That's what it does. That's what thinking is, analyzing, whatever you want to call it, is questioning. Okay. 
Now, neuropsychologists believe that 90% of what our brain does is unconscious to us. We're not even aware of it. We're not talking about subconscious, we're talking about unconscious. And so we're unconscious of 90% of the questions our brain asks. For example, the brain is analyzing all the time, even when we're unconscious. What I mean by unconscious, asleep. If our brain hears a strange sound or smells a strange smell, we wake up. It's always analyzing. And then we look around with our other senses. Where is it? What is it? And so forth. We're constantly analyzing. Or if we're asleep, we seldom roll out of bed. And also we've had too much alcohol to drink, but that's another issue. That means we weren't thinking. Uh, so what our brain is constantly analyzing how much space we have left and how much it can roll. A third illustration is if we're walking down through a crowded sidewalk, we seldom bump into people because our brain is analyzing our space and we make adjustments. Adjustments are answers. Actions are answers. Come out of our thought process, out of our questioning process. It's, so we have analyzing and then we have an analysis. That's the answer. That's how those two words go together. And right now, as you're listening to me, you're analyzing, your brain is analyzing everything I'm saying. If you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to understand any word, not a word, because you're analyzing context and so forth. And so on my voice, Billy's voice, you're analyzing all this time. And sometimes you might even be doubting. That's okay, because doubting is, a, is, a, is, a, is an exercise in questioning. To doubt is to question. Uh, anyway, so that's the crux of it as far as thinking is concerned. Now I can give many examples in the back of the in the back of the think piece online, and in the back of my books I have a chart of 84 words that mean questioning, diagnosing, troubleshooting, contrasting, comparing, analyzing. It goes on and on for 84 words. How do we have 84 words for questioning? Because that's how our brain solves things. Whether you're diagnosing a pa patient or testing somebody, testing his questioning. Uh, that's, that's how the brain works. Also, and everything else is an answer. In the rational, logical part, as far as I'm concerned, there are only questions and answers. There are only processes and products. You cannot have a product without a process. Questions are a process, process, an answer, or an outcome, an action is an answer. Sounds very simplified, but there's patterns throughout our lives that we don't recognize. I mean, just to go off the script here a bit, your tongue, in the, how many years you've been living, how many times you've bitten your tongue, but yet it's pushing that food all the right place at the right time. We don't think about that. It's always going on. Or if I ask you to close your eyes and reach around and touch your left earlobe, you could do it with your right hand. We know so much of patterns. We're a pattern. Uh, so if we don't know the process of thinking, it's just like not, no, and, and we, therefore we can't improve it. Then we can't improve the process of baking a pie without a recipe. It's just that simple. It's interesting, um, uh, you know, you asked what state has the biggest wilderness park. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we leave the audience to look it up themselves, like I did when I was first asked this question after being invited over to, for dinner. Uh, but. Uh, 
uh, it's also, you know, you stand there and your wife or your, uh, your mate will ask you a question and maybe it's something you didn't do. You'll ask yourself other questions on how do I get out of answering this <laughs> question the proper way. You sounds like a politician to me. How? Politicians fear questions. Totalitarian governments and extreme religions will not be questioned. That's how powerful the question is. Speaking of that, when my kids were little and we were driving in the car, Daddy, why is the sky blue? Daddy, how's that truck going? Daddy, why is it raining here and not over there? Gosh, the questions that come from the kids. But from what I understand, you should never suppress that. Never. We should attempt to answer or tell them, I don't know, but I'll find out. Okay. Because uh, you suppress it, you're telling them something's not important. By the way, when they ask those million questions, let's say they get on a subject that you don't want them to get onto, let's say it's sex. Somehow they found out early and some other. If you want to divert them from asking that particular type of question, this is what Socrates found out. When you ask a person a question, because the brain is the questioning organ, it has to do one of three things. It has to try to solve it. It, it decides not to. A decision is an answer, so there was a question before that, because deciding is a question process. Or tell lies, and that takes a lot of questions. How can I tell this so people will believe me? So when you ask a person a question, you actually hack into their mind. They have to pay attention. I can talk all day long on nothing or something and so on, but your brain can, ex can just blow that off. But when you're directly asked a question, I take control of your mind. Socrates found that out 2,300 years ago because his method of teaching was asking questions. And that's exactly how law schools for the last almost 100 years in the United States is how we teach law. The professor teaches by asking questions because when you ask a person a question, they have to ask themselves that question before they can go to find the answer. I don't care if it's an IQ test or other. Like so, when those children are asking about sexual situations or not something you'd want to get into, just ask them, where's that toy? Where's your daddy? Where's your mommy? Where can I find this? And you actually hacked into their brain and they must think about what you just asked them. That's why we have the rhetorical question. We don't expect an answer, but we want to bring people to what we're talking about. We even have a form for doing that on purpose. So with children, have them ask all those questions. Now that, but I don't know if I mentioned it, but Voltaire said you learn more about a man from his questions than you do his answers, because he could say just yes or no, and you don't know how he got there. But when children or anybody asks a question, it tells you, tells you what they don't know, what they're interested in, and what they need to know, and what they desire. Listen to them. They're, they're communicating to you in the strongest possible way. They're not just turning you off or giving you a hard time. They want to know. And that's how they learn. That's the second part of my book, Learning, right? So never stifle questions. Ask them a question to redirect because you control. And that's how news commentators, they ask questions. In fact, even the police say, I'm asking the questions, right? Because they're in control. Or and, wife. Or, and, and there's a challenge, let's say, when those kids ask those, those tsunami of questions, you don't realize it, but they're taking control over you. They're in control, yet you're the parent in the, in the house. 
So I'm the, I'm the adult. What do you, but you don't know you're being controlled, but you're actually being controlled. Questions control. The question is the first step in gaining knowledge, always. Society today is on a slippery slope. Do you think it's too late? Do you think if this is put into place, we can save ourselves? I know this is... Well, you're speaking in generalities, but I think I know where you're heading. My mother called me irritatingly positive. So I think there's always an opportunity. Now, do we have a challenge today? Certainly. Because without our ability to critically think, and we'll get into critical thinking later, without that ability to critically think, we can't determine the diff difference between information, misinformation, disinformation, and false conspiracy theories. And with the internet today, and social media all around the world, it's everybody's opinion. And opinion usually, and many times, is driven by emotion. Because they're, they're afraid of being displaced, or they're afraid of this. In fact, ignorance is the, is the creation of fear. You fear what you don't know. So because I've been through so many cultures and so many religions, living in among them, I don't have those fears. They're people like me. In fact, I say in general that the world is predominantly positive. Because if we were predominantly negative, we would have killed ourselves off thousands of years ago. And you can't raise children being negative, although some do. But generally speaking, no. It's called love and kindness and all that. So the Internet is a confusing thing. And the only way we can solve that is by asking well-constructed questions of not just this group, not just that group, but a broad group of people. Let's go to what scientists do, called the scientific method. The first step in the scientific method is to ask a question. They're after knowledge, right? Yes. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, the word science comes from the Latin word scientia. Now, what does that mean if we translate it in English? It means knowledge. So, are you going to go to the experts that have this knowledge on the web, web, or are you going to go to your friends and your neighbors who are, have opinions too? Are you looking for opinions, or are you looking for facts? And do you know the difference between a fact and a non-fact? The only way to know is a question. And you have to do your research. Not research in your, where everybody agrees with you, but research in several different places and contrast and compare. Contrasting and comparing are two questioning processes. It just goes right back into question. So that's our challenge. We have all these opinions. Now the difference between a, a theory and opinion, many people throw around the word theory. It's an opinion or a view or something they've narrowly experienced. But the difference between that and a scientific theory is this. A scientific theory is usually starts out as a hypothesis, a guess, or whatever it might, whatever it might call it. And to test them to ensure that they are, have concreteness to them or, or actual. You ask questions, that's what testing is, right? If they fail, then a hypothesis goes away. So scientific theories is based on observations and evidence, not just on opinion. And that's what I do in my think piece. I go through those observations as support that thinking is the process of asking ourselves questions. And I do that in the books as well because to just come out with definition of thinking is the process of asking ourselves questions leaves a lot of questions. 
You know what's interesting in going to the humankey.com and going to the think piece is that I have found going to it that it's it's ever changing. Uh, do you sleep at night? It never. <laughs> when you mean ever changing, I'm not sure what you mean by that. But what I do is writing is a refining process, and I started 14 years. Well, even before that, with haiku. Uh, it's a refining process. No, that word's not right. Do people understand this word? Uh, should this paragraph go here or later? Should it make more chapters? What should the title of the book? What, what graphics should I use? And so on and so on. So, as I go through, even today, I'm discovering simpler and better ways to explain things. Or a link that I'll put in my website that will take you directly to a place where it's confirmation. So yes, it is a refining process. Now it's getting down to not commas and periods, but it's coming back to the choice of the right word. And one of our challenges in English is we have so many words that are similar. We look those up in a thesaurus, right? A sidebar on this, United States English is the only language that has a thesaurus, except for one, which is Japanese, so I don't know why, because I lived there too. But isn't that unusual? There's, we have so many synonyms. That means we have so many shades of gray to examine, so many words to examine things with. And only we can only use words in questions. And words are the tool of questioning. If you don't know the words, you can't question, you can't think about it. You can't think about neuroscience if you've never studied neuroscience. I have to explain it to what neuro means. Neuro means nerve and science is knowledge. So you have to ask questions. And the more you do, the better craft, the better you can craft them. And you, all practice means moving conscious practice into unconscious practice. Conscious practice becomes unconscious practice. Therefore, you start to do things you know, never, they're not even passing your mind anymore. They're unconscious or subconscious. We can go to a lot of things here, but some, some people equate subconscious with unconscious. We have a category called conscious. Underneath that is subconscious, below conscious, right? Those things, you're driving down the road and you've been taught how to drive, and all of a sudden you be conscious that the wheel's coming over. You know that, that means that there might be a problem. So it's, you can bring it from your subconscious back up to your conscious. Your unconscious, you, you have no no window up. So when you're sleeping, you don't you don't even know you're aware. It's nothing. You are aware, obviously, because you're analyzing. So that's what questioning leaves you out to not taking shots or not doing things. So thinking is central to who we are. We've got to get it straight, but we have to know what it is. And now that we know what it is, we know it's the process of asking ourselves questions. We know where to zero in on. It's the question. All knowledge and, and information are answers to questions, either a moment ago or a millennia ago. So, can we be wise without knowledge? Well, wisdom is how to appropriately use knowledge. And knowledge is an accumulation of answers, yes? And they come from questions, right? Now, we're called Homo sapien which means wise mankind. But we can't be wise without questions. 
can't do anything without questions. So we should be homo questioner. I think we will continue this conversation in episode two. Okay. Uh, Ted Agon, thank you so much. My pleasure. And uh, thank, to, you, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you're quite welcome. To our listeners, if you have any questions or comments, you can contact Ted through thehumankey.com, and we look forward to uh, your comments, questions, and even arguments back. So we'll see you on episode two. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks. This was a conversation with Ted. For a more comprehensive and focused understanding of the process of thinking and supporting evidence, you may wish to visit thehumankey.com and select Think Piece on the menu.